Hey, it's Adam Carolla. We love having great guests on my show, like Jay Leno. The medic runs over and says to the driver, what's your name? How old are you? He goes, I'm Bob Riggle, 81 years old. And he taps me, he goes, what's your name? How old are you? And I said, I'm Bob Riggle, and I'm 81 years old. <laughs> Howie Mandel. Because right. anything you could put off is a haircut. And don't take that from a bald guy, but nobody needs a haircut. And Jimmy Kimmel. We get the phone book, and we start calling people in Atlanta. And we reach this old man named Charlie Brown. We were looking up names like Charlie Brown. <laughs> so check out the Adam Carolla Show on Podcast One. I mean, what's that football book is doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson back here on a Thursday. How you doing, Sam? Doing good, Steve. You? Doing wonderful. Still just uh, on call. Mm, no Waiting. baby yet. No baby yet. We shall see. Sometime next week, though. It's right. happening next week. Which is good timing because no Montana Young podcast yet, as you may have noticed. But I've, I'm listening, actually, before we started this, I've been listening to the first cut, the first edit of it. And I think it's going to be really good. Like if you like the Moss one. one. I mean, next week sometime, I think, probably Thursday, just to give us some breathing room, um, depending on, you know, when you need to go crazy. But next week, yeah. I would think for Montana Young, like if you like the Randy Moss one, I think you'll love this one. It's it's really good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to uh, – I'm going to listen to it right after uh, we record here and send you my feedback, see where we can uh, make it even better. Not really interested. Um, in yeah, feedback, looking forward – thank you. Looking <laughs> forward to that one as well. So uh, today – we get to pick apart Sam's writing. He hmm. put on PFF.com 15 NFL players entering prove it years in 2020. We did take uh, a little bit of a vote on, on this list. And did you have a criteria for this? Who, how are we finding guys that are entering their uh, prove it years, Sam? No, it's one of those great things where there's no like defined, you know, criteria for what this is. It's just gut feel. It's what you think. And then as soon as you've finished writing and it goes up on the website, you think of five other people that made more sense to be on the list. Perfect. Well, that's what the podcast is for. You can expand the list or you can write a follow-up article, the top five players who just missed the prove it years list. Yeah. It, the other one is, is where you, you know, you write to other people or send them a message like, Hey, who should you have on this list? And then they don't reply until you write the list and then give you like 15 guys. So that was also helpful. Like that was Ben Stockwell's trick. Right. Gave me, gave me like one guy that was useless. And then as soon as I'd finished writing and file the thing, he came up with a list of three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine guys to add onto it. None of Thanks, them were on, I don't think. And some of whom actually made a lot of sense, but uh, too late, too late, Ben. Well, well, let's stick with what's on the website. Again, it's over at pff.com players entering their prove it years. And we'll start with the top two on the list because they kind of go hand in hand, Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham entering prove it years. Why? 
Yeah. So I tried to at least order the lists almost by, you know, how obvious this was. I think Baker is the most obvious prove it candidate in the entire list. Odell Beckham's there with him, but I think really it, it focuses on Mayfield. Like we've talked about this before. The, the entire Browns offseason this year has been about taking off the various other things that could have been the problem last year or were the problem. I mean, everything was the problem. So they've, you know, they've addressed the pass protection. You pay big money to um, Jack Conklin, a right tackle. You draft a tackle. You pay overpay for a guy like Austin Hooper because you need to be able to run the offense that Kevin Stefanski wants. The offense that Kevin Stefanski wants to run comes in and actually gives them some structure as opposed to what the Browns were running last year under Freddie Kitchens. Um, So all these things have been kind of crossed off as potential problems uh, that were causing Baker Mayfield to have such a a steep regression um, from, from his rookie season. So that kind of puts all the focus back on Baker. And you can look at that two ways, right? Either they're sort of setting him up with the best way of succeeding. They're, they're, you know, building all the things around him that were such a problem a year ago. On the other hand, it's like, well, now all the pressure is on him. Like there's no, no more excuses. It's all you. We've done everything we can. You need to show up and and be the guy we thought you were. So I think all the pressure is on Baker, but Odell Beckham, I think is right there in terms of, look, this was a guy who, He's as talented as any receiver in the NFL. He's up there with Julio Jones in terms of raw skill set, ability to break uh, the game open, you know, make circus catches for fun, all this kind of stuff. He has elite seasons on his resume, PFF grades above 90, crazy numbers. We haven't seen it for a while. His, I don't know how much of this is a construct of, you know, New York media, but his personality is sort of, he's become one of those distraction receivers last year was not good. He was playing through, you know, a hernia injury all season long, but so much of the problem was just not being on the same page as Baker Mayfield. It's not like he was physically limited as much as just not where he was supposed to be, or at least where Baker Mayfield thought he would be. So he needs to, you know, show up and prove that he is that guy again. Yeah. All all last season, we talked about how the Browns offense was just off. Everything was off. And, you know, when we go through our play-by-play grading and some of the nuance to it, um, there are a lot of plays where it looks like the quarterback made a bad decision or whatever it might be. You know, there are, there are some really bad throws in there where you have to go back and be like, let's watch the receiver on this. Did he make this look worse? Did he cut off his route? I have never seen so many times where Odell Beckham, where quarterback and receiver were just not on the same page. And it was a lot of like, are you going to run a dig route where you right. it's like a straight in at 20 yards where it's like, you got to really flatten that out or you're going to run more of a post where obviously you're, you're running at more of a 45 degree angle. Like those nuances, which I think by the way is one of the most fun parts about the NFL. The fact that they don't screw that up, you know, all that often the timing and the execution that so many NFL players have on plays with like that level of detail, I think is spectacular, but I've never seen, a quarterback and receiver as off except remember when Eli Manning was trying to throw to uh, Ruben Randall back in the day. Hmm. And it felt like they, they, they just were never on the same page. Like there's a couple times through history where you've seen it, but this was like constant every single week. And Odell would give one of those, like I'm running a dig. He would start it. Right. And then just go upfield. And the quarterback has to go on the, he has to throw the ball on the break. And this isn't absolving Baker. I'm just saying in general, this was an issue 
is it a comeback? Is it an out? Is it a dig route? Is it a post? They were just not on the same page. And I just want to read Odell Beckham's list, list radio here. His receiving grades in his career in seasons with at least 100 targets. 91, 90, 85, 89.9, 69.4. So four grades essentially in the blue, high 80s, you know, mid to high eight, uh, mid mid eighties to nineties. And then last year, 69.4. Um, there was a massive drop off in Odell Beckham's play last year. And there was a big drop off in Baker's play. Brady to Ocho Cinco is the other one that those two guys were never on true, the same page. True. It was always like and that Joe, one. Then on? Joey Galloway. Yeah. yeah Joey and, Galloway in 2009 and then Ocho in, uh, in 2011. And that one was always like, well, obviously Brady's not the problem, right? He's been in the offense forever. Yeah. Ocho Cinco just can't pick it up. We know this is, there's lots of option rights in the Patriot system. So it's his fault. I don't know who's at fault for the OBJ Baker thing. You, you always, I think default to the receiver being at fault rather than the quarterback. You know, if you're figuring one guy has the offense down in terms of what it should be, it's the quarterback. But, you know, Mayfield's a young quarterback. It was a relatively new system. It was a relatively, you know, incoherent system. So I don't know that it's fair to just say, hey, it's Odell Beckham's fault, not Mayfield's. But whatever it is, those two guys were just unable to get on the same page. And that's what right. that's why I think there's some pressure on Odell because it, I don't think just being healthy fixes it, right? The idea that, oh, he, he was dealing with a hernia injury, so he wasn't the right guy. Okay, but that like that's not a reason why you run a dig instead of a post. Like, you don't right. you know you don't do that because you have a twinge in the, of the hernia like it doesn't it doesn't pull you to the side like a horse you know with the 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 bridle yanking his head to the side and turning left like whatever it was those two guys need to get on the same page collectively to make that top end wide receiver quarterback connection it's one of the things i think early in pff world when we were younger analysts i think i i know i tended to just always look at the last season and just say, well, here's what happened last season, and I fully expect something similar to last season. But I think you have to take the full body of work into consideration. And what I just read was the full body of Odell's work, which is four elite seasons and one bad one. Uh, I, we still say, even though Baker's got three years of college and two in the NFL, four out of five years, he's graded well. So the point is, if you're, if you're expecting bounce backs, both of these guys should be on your bounce back list, but they're also on the prove it list, obviously too, because they're right. coming off the both you know, the worst seasons that we've graded for them, either at college or the NFL uh, in PFF history. Um, next up on the list, you have Jadavian Clowney from, let me uh, read the team here. Free agent, mm. still mm. unsigned Jadavion. Yeah. So, you know, we entered free agency, what seems like a lifetime ago. Um, and Jadevian Clowney was one of the, the potential jewels of the, the entire free agent group. He was the guy that was looking for the market resetting contract, the endemic Sioux deal. Um, and it just never materialized. And, you know, there's, there's been all kinds of talk as to why, and, you know, some people pointed to the sack totals and whatever. I, I think ultimately it's kind of right. You know, he hasn't ever been, he's never been a top five edge rusher his best seasons have put him in the top 10 just about um you know eight nine that kind of area he's never been the player that his insane physical gifts and the occasional flash play would suggest he could be and that's why teams just haven't thrown all the money at him so his last two seasons have been the best two seasons of his career but they still haven't been enough to push him up into that rarefied air of the money that he wants so 
he probably needs to take that one year, you know, $10 million prove it type deal this season. And if he wants the endemic and Sue money, like this is the season 2020 needs to be the year where Clowney is a top five, top three edge rusher. If he wants that contract, because otherwise I just don't see it ever materializing. He's going to have to accept a lower uh, value deal because evidently the NFL appears to have decided that he hasn't yet justified it. I think they're right. Yeah. We discussed this back during free agency. It's one of those, like, are they overrating the three sacks potentially? But at the same time, if he had 10 sacks with the same level of production, we'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Clowney's not really a 10 sack guy. And I know you've done some work on this. Timo's done some work on this even more. Um, taking something I think we've already done really well through the years, quantifying pressures and converting them to sacks and all that stuff um, that we were talking about on Monday um, and just putting even more numbers to that. Timo's going to go ahead and like simulate this stuff, like simulate seasons, which I think will be fascinating because if you take Clowney's season last year and you simulate it, you know, in X percent of the simulations, he'll have eight sacks and a bunch will have 10 and a bunch will have three with the same exact performance. Um, and yeah. I think that's the thing about football analysis and analytics that is tough to um, – I think that's the part that's tough to comprehend, Sam, is that you can take this baseline of performance, like you performed at X, and then if you say, if you perform at X a thousand times, here's this massive wide range of outcomes. The range of outcomes isn't even changing your level of play necessarily. It's actually saying – if you do all the same things, you make every throw the same way, you have this many wins as a pass rusher, you can actually get a wide range of outcomes as far as the stats go. And then, of course, you throw on top of that that your play is going to fluctuate as well. That's the uncertainty that you're dealing with when projecting football players. And again, I think the tough thing to comprehend where it's like you could play at the same exact level and get drastically different results. And what we try to do is to quantify that level that you played at which over time is going to balance a little bit. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the sacks obviously is not a great way of measuring pass rush performance, but it sometimes hits the right mark. You know, if you're looking at Clowney and saying, well, you got four sacks last season. Was it four including the playoffs or four uh, total? Uh, four including the playoffs. So three in the regular season, four including the playoffs. If you're looking at that and saying, well, that's why he's not a good pass rusher, that's bad process. On the other hand, he's never had double-digit sacks in a season, and that actually probably does tell a fair uh, story of his ability or his performance. It tells the right story. He's yep. ne- like, you know, the look at total pressure, scale it up, right? Um, that's the, always the next step from sacks is how many pressures does he get? Last season, uh, Zadaria Smith led the NFL in total pressures with 93, the most, including the playoffs, that Clowney has ever had is 63. So even including the postseason, he's never been within 30 of what was a league-leading figure last season. Um, so I think that's important. And then when we looked at the, the guys that do skew, you know, the Brandon Grahams of the world, guys that do consistently get a little bit less sa- – or a little bit fewer sacks, uh, less of a percentage of their pressure results in sacks, yeah, essentially bad finishers – um, you know, Brandon Graham was one. Brian Robison was another one we pulled out. Clowney is in that ballpark. He does skew low in terms of finishing pressure with sacks. Largely, you know, he's a guy that wins with power a lot, um, is another one of those guys that doesn't have that many clean wins. So he does skew negative in terms of the amount of pressure he gets that will produce sacks. 
which I think will always lead to you being underrated to a degree. You know, this was Brandon Graham's problem for years that he never got sacked. So nobody thought he was a good pass rusher for a long time. Um, a Clowney is sort of in that territory. You know, he's going to get, he's going to get some kind of modest deal, but he's probably going to get a little bit underrated even as a pass rusher because he skews low on the, the sacks. Yeah. Clowney, Clowney's an outstanding run defender. Um, we'll, you know, he's been, he's been a good player, a valuable player. Uh, we'll see if there's a contender that looks for him and, and tries to pick him up here as a free agent. The next two on the list are two quarterbacks who get compared to each other hmm. quite a bit. Josh Allen, bingo card. Did you get your bingo card? Josh Allen, I'm going to give you some positives with Josh. I'm going to give you the, the positive outlook for Josh Allen. Um, and then Cam Newton. So Cam, obviously, just joining the Patriots. Go listen to our Monday discussion uh, in detail about all of our thoughts on Cam. So prove it years for both guys, and I think for different reasons. Josh Allen is supposed to be kind of the next Cam Newton, right? I mean, the Buffalo Bills fans are looking at Josh Allen saying Cam became an MVP candidate in what his fourth year in the league. Uh, he had the big the cannon for an arm, you know, wasn't the most pinpoint from an accuracy standpoint, but he made it work. Great rushing ability, a lot of similarities in their skill sets. So Bills fans are expecting Josh Allen to take a huge jump in year three. Uh, plus you have the supporting cast, uh, improvement there in Buffalo. They've done a really nice job building around Josh Allen. And of course, with Cam Newton, it's, you know, what do you have left? Last time we've seen him, he's been banged up over the last year and a half, um, has not been nearly as good as he was since his MVP, uh, in his MVP season in 2015, hasn't been the same player. He's ranked in the 20s in PFF grade each of his last three years. Josh Allen, Cam Newton in the AFC East. Cam Newton one's the easier one. Let's tackle that first. Um, it's pretty obvious. Sure. I mean, the guy signed a contract that was worth like nothing. Um, I think the guaranteed money was like five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, like the the incentives are actually like fairly easily attainable ones. I think they're like roster bonus things for each week. So he gets like seven hundred k or something every week he's playing. So in theory, he can make that seven and a half million or whatever reasonably easy if he is the starter for the Patriots. But the idea that like a former MVP is making seven and a half million for a season starting for a contender is insane. So it's obvious if Cam Newton wants to get the recognition of being this former NFL quarterback, a top end player who can lead a contender, who can start again, who can all these kind of things, you know, quarterbacks make a hundred million dollars now and Cam Newton is not. So that's his prove it thing. He needs to take the crappy deal, show that he's undervalued and then get his big money contract this time next season uh, Allen is more complicated because there's nuance to this. Look, Josh Allen has taken steps forward, um, and he's he's quickly becoming one of these really interesting quarterbacks whose data is sort of unusual. Um, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo is one of these that that interests me because his numbers are not conventional numbers. You know, he succeeds and fails in interesting ways. And I think that's the same thing with Josh Allen. Like he isn't just bad. Um, and that's, so Trubisky sucks, right? Across the board, Trubisky's just bad at everything. And that's why they go and trade for Nick Foles. That's why they're saddled with another crappy contract because you just had enough of the bad quarterback who did nothing well. Allen is not that. Allen is good at some things and he's really good at certain things that sort of skew perception in his favor. Like he's really highly graded on the sort of anything up to intermediate. And 
the lar- a large reason for that is that's where all his big time throws are. He skews in, uh, he skews positive in terms of like accuracy plus plays. So those like perfect ball location throws. So but you go through his tape and you can find these incredible passes that are just absolute lasers exactly on the money to guys like Cole Beasley, John Brown at the intermediate level. Um, but like overall, he's still not that accurate at that stuff. And obviously we have this problem of he's the worst deep passer in the NFL with one of the strongest arms in the NFL. So he's taken a big step forward. It's just, there's still a long way to go for him to be like good. Yeah. And I I look at it similar, but also I think the the differences that I would add to it, you've got the rushing ability. He's got the second most rushing yards in the NFL uh, behind Lamar. Mm -hmm. He's got the most rushing touchdowns in the NFL. So um, even since he came in, I said he is the type of guy that will have one of those seasons that's, uh, first off, extremely fantasy relevant. Um, You know, if he comes, he might throw for 25 touchdowns and rush for another eight or 10 this year and and win some fantasy leagues for you just from touchdown production um, and doing that without necessarily improving as a quarterback. And, And I think that is where the optimism can come from, from the bills. Now, of course, um, there's a, there's a scenario where he gets like a little bit better and the stats get way better. And we're getting people all over us. Look at our guy, Josh, look at him improving. Um, and there are numbers that say that might happen. Right. Um, so on a, here's the positive side last year, he ranked 12th in positively graded throw percentage, which is a number that is driven by the quarterback, but just as much it's driven by your supporting cast. It's more opportunities. It's more, um, it's the number that fluctuates a little bit that goes down when you have bad receivers. It goes up when you have good receivers. Now that he has Stephon Diggs, and by the way, Cole Beasley in single coverage last year opened the most from a percentage standpoint. Now, slot receivers will skew higher there, but Cole Beasley's been the leader in that category in three out of the last four years. How about Those, that one? That, three, that trio of receivers, I think, is the best receiving group in the NFL in terms of generating separation. Now, yep. uh, yeah, no, I think it will be, I, regardless of any other group you can get. Cole Beasley separates from the slot better than pretty much any receiver in the NFL. John yep. Brown is a really good deep receiver at separating, and Stephon Diggs gets more separation than most receivers in the league. So that trio, like, it is the perfect group of receivers for a quarterback that will probably always struggle with an overall level of accuracy. Like I say, he's got an incredible ability to sort of fire in these perfect passes, but when you look at like overall percentages of like, if you give him a hundred passes to hit a target, how many is he going to hit? He will be low compared with other quarterbacks. Yeah. So, so that might not even change this year. And, and here's, so you've got the positively graded throws, which often dictated by the supporting cast, you add Stefan Diggs to the mix, one of the better deep receivers in the NFL and just having more open deep receivers. Like you don't have to be pinpoint. Like he'll hit more deep throws this year. It's going to happen. That's okay, probably a so, good way of summing up his accuracy, actually, right? If you're if you give him like a hundred throws at a big wooden bullseye, um, you know, thirty yards away, like he is going to miss the bullseye, or he's going to miss the target more than most quarterbacks in the NFL. But he's also going to hit the exact bullseye in the middle more than most quarterbacks in the NFL. That's currently his passing profile. Like he either hits it dead on in the bullseye or he misses the target completely, and he does it really fast. Yes. Which is awesome. Which He's is also going to break the bullseye. Oh, yes. Like you throwing at that Eckridge target. I was seriously concerned we were going to be sending them back a dented piece of metal. For, not that you were going to actually hit the target, the hole, but you putting the ball through the sheet metal. 
was a concern to me. My arm's well rested. I'm on nine years rest. So, uh, you know, ball was coming out, coming out hot. Um, So the, um, the pessimistic part of Allen's game is the stable part of quarterback play is the negatively graded throws. It's more stable. It's not hundred percent. We saw Lamar Jackson improve in this last year. You have examples, but Josh Allen was dead last in negatively graded throws last year. Um, So here's how his season could go. Um, He could still have a whole bunch of negatives. He could still have uh, a PFF grade. That's eh, not all that great. And and not uh, great on a throw for throw basis, but if he has more opportunities for positives or he has more, um, just either open throws, yards after the catch between Beasley, Stephon Diggs, uh, open deep throws with John Brown, the stats could look pretty good. Um, and, and honestly, as a fan, all you really care about is passing production. You don't – I mean, you want to go on Twitter and tell everybody about how great your quarterback is and all that stuff. But as a fan and as a team, you're just trying to extract an efficient passing game because that's what helps win football games. And the Bills are doing everything they can. They're doing a great job of building – around Josh Allen. Um, so all that said, because they've done a good job of putting that supporting cast, it's a prove it year. Like, all right, hmm. this is the best supporting cast out of all the first round quarterbacks that have come in the last two years. It's Josh Allen from a players around him standpoint. And then Lamar Jackson, probably from a system and building around his skill set standpoint. It's those two guys that are in like a different class as far as teams building around them among first round picks the last two years. Like even, even the most ardent Josh Allen supporters, their main argument is not so much that he's great right now. It's that he's taking big steps forward and therefore step two, you know, next year he'll be really good. It's like, okay, that's, that's fine. That logic is okay. It doesn't always hold, but the point is either way, like this is the year that actually needs to happen. Like if he doesn't take another step forward, he's still not a good quarterback at which point you have some issues. Somebody last night on Twitter resurfaced your old tweet that was uh the Josh Allen, Jeff George comps. God, I love yeah. that comp. It's so good. Like those Jeff George plays where he's just scrambling around like a lunatic and then like firing in a laser from an absurd arm angle that like, you know, a, a handful of quarterbacks in NFL history could make is, is nuts. Like it is such a good comp for that guy. You were, you were on, right? So you, you made this comp and I'm like, all right, I need to, I need to prove this. Right. And I go looking for George, uh, Jeff George games. And so like the first one I post exactly, you described it fine. He runs around like a lunatic and then throws like a laser 20 yards down the field pinpoint. And then he threw Then I posted what a YOLO ball here where he just goes back foot, chucks it up. He scrambles backwards. This is like Madden style scrambles yeah. backwards, 15 yards, chucks it up, not to the sideline, mind you, to the middle of the field, easy interception. Then I give it another end zone view on the same thing. I mean, it is just, it is hilarious. It looks like you pressed the wrong button. But even that one, like trying to fire it in there like a million miles an hour. It's like, all right, the window's five inches wide. So is the ball. I can get it there. Um, Like about the only thing, I mean, Jeff George apparently had some attitude problems that Josh Allen doesn't appear to have. So that's, that's not great, but that wasn't really where I was going with the comp anyway. Um, Allen's a better athlete than Jeff George was, but Jeff George earlier in his career could move. Like this guy is running around there looking like a pretty good athlete. He just didn't scramble a lot. Um, I, I love that comp. I think like that's way, but people want to compare Josh Allen to Cam Newton. Like you say, Jeff George is a way better comp in terms of like stylistic player. Oh, absolutely. But, but with, with some really good rushing ability 
you know, right. and that, you know, he has added some, some value there, but that's uh, like, that's a cautionary tale for how Allen needs to get better. Right. Because same thing, Jeff George, first round pick highly touted has all the talent in the world, ultimately crapped out in multiple spots. Like that's a potential end for Josh Allen. If he doesn't take that next step forward. But this is like, this is kind of like the, um, the caveat I always bring up and I always try to warn fans not to expect like perfect progression or whatever. Right. Like even so like Jeff George pass, just using passer rating as a proxy here, 73.8, 73.8, his first two seasons, like at the time it's below average, but it's like, all right, uh, you're a young quarterback. That stuff's going to happen. All right, let's see what happens in year three. This is where you're going to take the big step forward. 61.5. He goes seven touchdowns and 15 picks and, and has one of his worst seasons. Right. And then the next year, not much better. Right. I mean, it's like, um, he goes back up to 76, but like he never really developed. And then out of the blue, you put him in Minnesota in 1999 with Randy Moss. And it's like, Whoa, he's got a really, there's a really good season there. Like, and he had, oh, I'm sorry, 97. He kind of had a, a decent year with the Raiders. Right. So like there wasn't just this natural progression. It was like for the whole of Jeff George's career, he was not good outside of two years, probably three years, 95 in Atlanta system helped run and shoot in 95, like pass heavy league that year. There were three years where Jeff George was good out of 10, 11. Yeah. Like, honestly, I could see that type of career for Josh Allen and don't, you know, he's still like a similar, he's a player like in this range where there's some peaks and there's some, you know, this could be the year with all these playmakers. Right. Who else is on our list? Nuanced takes that nobody cares about. Marcus Davenport, another 2018 draft pick. The biggest thing here is he needs to be the as good as two first round picks. Like he's got to be the equivalent of multiple players. And I don't think he was ever going to really live up to that, but we still have like a, he's a developmental player. Where's your, where's his development. He is getting, he has gotten better though in his first couple seasons. Yeah. So I think he's on the right track, but again, like you, the next step needs to be taken. Like, I don't – so, yeah, in theory, he needs to be as valuable as two players to justify the trade they made. In reality, that's never going to happen. So I, I don't put it quite like that, but I, I do think that because they traded to get him, he needs to be really good, you know, for you to accept that that was a win. Um, even if, <clears throat> you know, when we pull out PFF war data or whatever, it, it will never be a win, right? Like he'll, he'll never be as valuable as two guys. But let's just say he needs to be really good for, for us to even say, all right, Fair enough. You got that one right. Um, he's on the track. Like, year one was okay. Uh, didn't play that much. Had 30 pressures. Had a reasonable grade. Nothing bad. Year two was a step forward across the board. His, his grade jumped 15 points overall. His pass rushing grade jumped 10 points. He had 50-plus pressures as opposed to 30. So he's on the right track. It's just that, again, like, it doesn't always go in that linear, perfect line graph in, a, in the right direction. Like, he needs... If it does, if he takes another step in that direction along the same trajectory, he's in real business. Like if his grade jumps 10 points again, he's in the mid-80s, mid to high 80s. That puts him among the better players. If his uh, pressures jump 20 again, he's at 70. That, again, is among the better edge rushes in the NFL. But that's the kind of leap he needs to make again to be one of the best pass rushers in the NFL to make that trade justified. When when he came out, too, like he was yeah, – the, the term like developmental player is kind of like thrown out there a lot. And, and it's often thrown out there at a guy that's like a freak athlete or really strong, but like needs to produce better. We looked at Marcus Davenport and said, 
the way he wins, which is generally with power, which worked great at UTEP. And he was very productive at UTEP. He wasn't a guy that was just like a good athlete who we were like hoping would play better football. He played really good football for what he was asked to do at UTEP. But we looked at him as a developmental prospect just because his overall pass rushing repertoire needed work. And, you know, I think we're still at that point where there's, there's room to grow there. So I like that. I like Davenport as a player. Uh, next um, Juju Smith Schuster hmm. on the list. I think that's a fair one, right? I mean, he's like the pro- the, he's got to prove himself outside like being the number one. And so much of his early production as a rookie was in the slot and making some big plays and he didn't really get a chance to prove himself last year because he didn't have big Ben. So there was a lot working against him last year, but like, he's the guy this year for the Steelers. He's got to be a true number one for them. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of questions coming into last year because Antonio Brown was no longer there. Like 2018, he basically outperformed Antonio Brown had 111 catches, 1400 yards, uh, seven touchdowns. Brown had more touchdowns, but like he, he effectively was elite, was as good as Brown when it comes to production. But everyone knew that Brown was the number one. He was the guy taking the attention. Juju operated from the slot, and he was the sort of the beneficiary of Brown's production or Brown's threat. And then with Antonio no longer there, the question was, well, can Juju Smith-Schuster step into his role and be as productive when he's the only guy, when he's the big-time threat? A, can he function as well playing outside predominantly rather than in the slot? And B, can he be as productive when Brown isn't taking all the attention away from him? And we didn't really get an answer to that because Juju was hurt and Ben Roethlisberger was hurt and then, you know, Duck Hodges and Mason Rudolph were throwing them the ball and you know, that wasn't going to lead anywhere. So you can essentially toss out last year as mitigating circumstances, but all that means is that the questions are there again. So you still have the same questions of whether he can be that player. And now he has to fight off on the same depth chart, Deontay Johnson, who, you know, did pretty well when you consider the disaster of a quarterback situation that was thrown his way. So I think again, like if, if Juju wants the big money, if he wants to be that number one guy, if he wants to be an elite receiver, he's got some work to do now. Yeah. We love Deontay Johnson. I think he's going to, he's going to have plenty of opportunities this year. The Steelers have, you know, as I write up all the receiving core groups, there's, there's a lot of teams that have many what ifs. It's like, well, if Juju does this and James Washington progresses here and Deontay could like, they're about three what ifs away from being a really good receiving unit, but they've got more what ifs than probably 28 other receiving units. I mean, the Steelers have on paper, and from a track record standpoint, one of the worst groups of receivers right. in the NFL. They're all um, potential at this point. They are, right? And it, um, it's funny because when you go through every receiving group, like every group, like the, the Jaguars have DJ Chark, who was awesome last year. Like every, even the worst groups have at least like a guy that you feel good about. But that's like the baseline for the Steelers. They need Juju or Deontay to be like the guy that you at least really feel good about and then hope that the guys around them really develop. So, um, do you have a take on him and Juju in general? Like we didn't get to see last year, but do you think, forget what the true number one is, like how do you think he'll produce uh, being the guy without Antonio Brown when given a shot here? I think Deontay Johnson's emergence potentially gives him a much better chance of it. Not because Deontay Johnson's necessarily going to take all the attention away, but I think you can you can go back to saying he can be a, you know, a slot outside hybrid. He doesn't need to be a pure perimeter receiver the way they, they would want him to be if they didn't have that guy. I think 
that enables them to sort of lean on what they know he was really good at when Brown was there and therefore sort of play to his strengths rather than investigating whether he can do the rest of it uh, better. So I think he'll bounce back. I don't know if he'll get, you know, 100 catches, 1,400 yards again, because that was kind of crazy. And then even in the same depth chart, I think it's a, it is a prove-it year for James Washington. It's just less consequential. Like he showed last year yeah. flashes of the player we thought he could be coming out, and that was, again, with no Roethlisberger at quarterback. You get Roethlisberger back. Washington has been the deep threat on this team. Like he has the potential to break out doing that, but it is like it's, it's way less of a sort of big deal than Juju. Right. Like we're sitting here in July. You can picture the world where all that comes together for the Steelers, but there's also the world where, you know, maybe it doesn't. So definitely a proven year there. I like this name as well. Roquan Smith, uh, linebacker for the Chicago Bears. I mean, he looked so good coming out. When we're, evalu- we're evaluating linebackers, and they're very difficult to project at the NFL level, there's so many different things um, that you just don't see enough of in college that you uh, have to see at the NFL level. But we had, you know, just like Deion Jones had that one snap that proved that he could cover down the field. Like Roquan had that one snap where he's running down the field with a receiver and makes a play on the ball. He had multiple snaps like that. He looked so good as a coverage player flying around the field uh, as a run defender. But so far this year, 66th grade in year one, you know, not bad. It was a good start, but last year regressed down to a 52, you know, repeating myself again, you don't always see the increase, the trajectory, but this was like, kind of bad the other way for Roquan yeah and there was some other stuff going on there like he got deactivated he there was some off-field something going on I don't know if it ever came out like what exactly it was he was dealing with or working his way through or or, uh, having to navigate but I don't think last year was a true indication of what Roquan Smith can and will be in the NFL but as you say it does it sets him back and at minimum it, it took a step in the wrong direction that he needs to reverse and even, you know, the rookie season was okay, but it wasn't, again, the player that we thought he would be coming out, this special coverage player um, at a time where that's never been more important. So we've seen flashes. You know, there's, there's talent there, and he makes a ton of tackles, so a lot of Bears fans think he's, you know, performing fantastically even when he ne- isn't necessarily. But I, I think he's got to take that step forward. A, he's got to show whatever it was that was happening last year is behind him, and B, he's then got to, build on that rookie season actually take steps in the right direction in, in terms of coverage, in terms of general run defense. We have a lot of these 2018, you know, year three type players. It, it is, it, it does always feel like a pivotal year for these guys. Uh, J.R. Alexander, I think he was my suggestion when you asked Sam cornerback for the Packers. And for me, I think he's really good. Um, but again, you, we, I always joked last year, like, is he going to be the next Marcus Peters? You know, is he going to, is he going to, go back and forth between awesome games, um, not just awesome games. Like we've seen him pa- break up what four and five passes in games before we've seen him make, you know, make incredible plays down the field. We've also seen him get torched. That's the, that's the Marcus Peters comp there. So I think, I think it's a huge year for, for Jair because he has all the skills to be a lockdown number one, but you know, every play counts in our grading. You can't have those lulls. You can't give up. Did he have a game with over 200 yards? I mean, you, he had he some did. bad games in there yeah. as well. Yeah. Somebody asked me on the radio yesterday, like, hey, I thought Jair was kind of already there. Um, what am I missing? And I was like, well, I did as well. I, after three weeks of the season, I wrote an article basically saying he was the next great young cornerback. And then that level of play <laughs> evaporated as the season went on. And 
the, the way I described it is, look, great cornerbacks don't have those games, right? Like you said, he had a game where he gave up 201 passing yards or 201 yeah. receiving yards, rather. 56 came after the catch. He gave up a touchdown in that game. He was beaten uh, for a pass rating of 103. Um, and that was against Dallas. Like, that was Amari Cooper and, and those guys just roasting him. He had another game where he gave up 129 yards later on against uh, the Chargers. Like, okay, those are decent receiving groups, but Richard Sherman went like a decade without giving up 100 receiving yards, you know? Like, if you're going to be a top-end cornerback, you can't give up 100 receiving yards in a game. You can't give up five touchdowns in a season. Like, Stephon Gilmore scored more touchdowns than he gave up last year. Like, that's the level you're looking at. You, you can't just do that for two or three games. You need to do that for 16 games and that's the difference between a guy with all the potential to be the top cornerback in the NFL and a guy who actually is the top cornerback in the NFL. Like that is what Jair needs to work on is he can't have those bad games where he just gets beat. He's certainly capable, man. I mean, here's, I just found this number. I think it sums him up. Pre- premium stats 2.0. Go check it out. You play around with all the data. You come up with something awesome like this. So I sorted by who the guys that gave up the most yards last year, the top 10 cornerbacks that gave up the most yards. If you give up the most yards, chances are you're not going to grade all that well. And across the board, that backs things up. Jair, though, is the only guy in the top 10 to have a coverage grade above 70. So he had a 76.7 coverage grade. But to your point, over 300 of those yards came uh, of 797 came in one game. Right. I mean, two games, right? Like he gave up almost like 40, 45% of his yards across two games. So over the course of the season, he was fantastic. Everybody else, coverage grade-wise, that gave up all these yards, 60, 58, 40, 59. He was a 76.7. He's still a very good corner. He had those couple games that were a big lull, and that's why he was seventh in uh, receiving yards given up. Yeah, and he, you know, he gave up like three times more yards than some of the other best corners in the NFL. Casey Hayward allowed 360. You know, Sherman was down at 200 or something insane. Um, different defenses, obviously, but, you know, there are cornerbacks that are significantly fewer than half the yardage he gave up. And again, like if you want to be at that level, that's the standard. All right, who else we got on this list? Um, by the way, J- Jair and Marcus Davenport, I think, always always linked right right in that draft the Packers gave up those picks that ended up becoming Davenport and then they still got Jair Jair who again if he if he pans out looks like just such a massive win and a steal for the Packers in that draft Uh, another cornerback Mike Hughes Minnesota Vikings this one's different from some of these other guys right yeah I mean through probably no fault of his own He's been dealing with injuries a lot. He just hasn't been on the field much. But now the Vikings, they, they said goodbye to their top three corners from last year in this offseason. All gone. So now Mike Hughes, not only is he suddenly their number one corner, but he actually kind of needs to be good. Otherwise, they're in trouble. Like, A, he needs to last. He needs to actually make it through the season without getting injured, which has, has been a problem. And B, he then needs to be decent or at least you know reasonable. Otherwise, that cornerback group is going to be a disaster now the good news for him is that the standards weren't high last year you know like Xavier Rhodes was awful Trey Waynes was average uh Mackenzie Alexander was pretty decent from the slot but none of those guys would necessarily terrify you in terms of having to replace them but suddenly that's a lot of pressure on a guy that's played like what 700 and something snaps across two seasons to to play a lot and be reasonable 
How do you think he's best deployed? When he came out, he just looked like a guy that you, you want him to play on the outside. He definitely has slot skills. The way they drafted now with Jeff Gladney and Cameron Dantzler in the first and third round, maybe those guys or Chris Boyd could play on the outside and Hughes can play more on the slot or Hughes could play that. Chris Harris, you know, base defense, you're outside playing the slot in nickel. What do you think the best role is for him? The Chris Harris role would be interesting. I, I kind of want to see him given the shot outside. I, I think he's got that size and build type that everybody just immediately wants to pivot into the slot, but I don't know that that's where he's best. He feels to me as a guy who does have the skill set to play outside, I would, I would give him that shot. And then, you know, if you want to kick him inside when you do go to nickel situations, that maybe that works. That's like Adam Jones was always the guy that was like a, a nickel right. body that just played the outside his entire career and played it, you know, fairly well for, for a long time. Um, Rashad Perryman, wide receiver, New York jets. I like this one a lot. I mean, I'm going to repeat the same thing I said about the Steelers group of receivers, right? I mean, there's a world where Brashad Perryman takes another step forward as a former first round pick. And Denzel Mims is as good as Sam thinks he is as a second round pick. And then uh, Jamison Crowder, uh, much like Cole Beasley, one of the better slot receivers at getting open and just doing what he does really, really well. Like there is this world where three things go really well for the Jets and they have a nice receiving core. But one of the things is that Brashad Perryman uh, really takes last year's big step forward, his career year, and elevates it even further here into 2020. Yeah, or even just, you know, sustains it. I mean, I think he's such a fascinating guy because first round pick way back when, but he's already on, is this his fifth team? No, third, uh, fourth rather. So he's, he's drafted by the Ravens in the first round, then went to Cleveland, Tampa Bay last year. So he's on his fourth team already. And, you know, he was a complete bust at this point a year ago. The Bucks have him on the depth chart. He's getting, you know, no playing time essentially early in the season because this is a team with a strong receiving core and suddenly injuries bite deep and he gets thrust into the starting lineup and the last few games of the season he basically has to play as like a, a number one number two receiver and responds with three back-to-back hundred yard games uh four touchdowns in that three game period like 12 18 24 targets in three games um 17 catches like he was a number one receiver just only for like a three-game stretch, three, four-game stretch. Um, but that was the first time we'd seen like this first-round talent that actually show up in the NFL. And I was like, oh, okay, the guy, that guy does exist. Like the guy that was so intriguing as a draft prospect is actually there somewhere. It's just that it was um, hidden by all the drops and the ugliness the first couple of seasons that made everybody give up on him. But his, it, Sorry, his first 53 catchable passes – he dropped nine of them. Yeah. And now he only has one drop in his last 52 catchable passes. Like that has been drops can be overrated unless you're dropping nine out of 53. Like you did like that's, that's six years for Larry Fitzgerald. It is, um, but equally it's like, it's so insane. A, a number that you almost have to expect that to come back down to average. Right. So it's, yeah. It, where it's dangerous is that it can be it, it is overrated, but you can have you can have such a severe drop problem in in a, in a short space of time that people immediately give up on you, and right. you're done, right? Like he was he was lucky as hell that people got injured ahead of him on the depth chart. Otherwise, his career is basically over. Like he's probably still hanging around on the Bucks as the fourth receiver on the depth chart, never to see the field, right? He 
Instead, people get injured and you completely reassess what you think his career might end up as. And it's at least given him the opportunity, right? Now he gets to go to the Jets, steps into the role that Robbie Anderson leaves, which is their sort of primary deep threat guy who got, you know, he got, what, 80-something targets last year? So there's, there's a lot of passes that should be sent his way. Um, but now the pressure is on for him to back that up and show that last year wasn't just a freaky four-game stretch. He's actually got the ability to be a big-time receiver, and then he can get, again, this time next year, he can get himself the big deal, not the the one-year, $6.5 million contract. I, I think there's between Perryman and a couple other names that are coming up on the list, I think from a team-building standpoint, this is just really smart. You can't, you can't put a ton of these guys on your roster. You can't make a whole <laughs> roster of these guys. But when you have guys like that, like here's – huge you know six two receiver with ball skills despite the drops and incredible speed who had a crazy amount of drops like i will take a shot on that guy just to see and the bucks got a lot of production out of him the next guy i want to take a shot on that the lions took it was an expensive shot um desmond trufant cornerback for the lions um a guy who four or five years ago i mean really looked like one of the like really one of the better young cornerbacks in the, in the league uh, playing for the Falcons um, having to play the saints every year and, you know, having to, um, he just, he was just really good. He, he's kind of like an, is it me or is he just really awkward moving and all that? Like I, he never looked <laughs> yeah. like a good athlete. And until like you actually watched movement. him. Yeah. Like you'd watch him cover. He ran fast at the combine and that was when it first caught my eye. I'm like, it's really fast robot, but he, but he's shifty enough too to like to deal with good route runners. And he was one of the best for a few need, years early on. I need to give you a theory though on Perriman before we, we depart. Oh, this. yeah. So obviously he got the opportunity by people getting injured in front of him. But I think what fixed him uh, in the NFL is that he shaved his head uh, because he went from this as a <laughs> as a hairstyle, right? Looking like he was 45 years old when he was drafted uh, <laughs> to this, which is, you know, like a standard young 20-something-year-old receiver. Mm. I think he he became a, a different human being. He, he embodied the youth that he had once he got rid of that ridiculous, like, 45-year-old, like, whatever the hell that was. You're right. He does look like way more of a baller now. His, he lost like 15 years by shaving his head. I that transformed. He went from, you know, old 42 year old Jerry Rice to, you know, a young number one receiver. Yeah. I, I don't think you're wrong in your theory. Good job Rashad Perryman. Yeah. So he could be really good with the jets this year, but got to prove it. Let's see what he could do. He's only career high last year, by the way, 36 catches for 645 yards. That's about 18 per catch, which is fantastic. Let's see what happens if he, you know, in a little bit more of a, a high volume uh, opportunity here for Perriman. Uh, back to Desmond Trufant, who looked really, really good early in his career, has a shot to be, uh, you know, paired with Jeffrey Akuda now with the uh, Lions. Mm. Well, he so he's now under pressure because he's basically got to show that he can replace Darius Slay and not see any kind of significant drop off. Um, and it's weird. Like the first two years of his career, he was again, the next young, great quarterback. Like we thought he was going to be, uh, who Stefan Gilmore turned out to be, I guess. And then like he, two seasons to start his career over 80 in terms of PFF grade, 82.8, 81.4 top end coverage grades. And then his baseline since then has been like 10 points lower 
Um, he's dealt with injuries a lot during that time, which hasn't helped, I don't think. But he just hasn't been that guy since. So now he, he gets, you know, the Falcons obviously are kind of done with him. He goes to Detroit. They decided that Darius Slay wasn't good enough to hold up in this man coverage scheme. Now the pressure's on Trufant to do the same. Yeah, I think the I think the man coverage component too is a huge part of it, right? It's not just get back to form. It's like, dude, you're pretty much on an island every single week. Right. You, know, you have a little safety help, but you guys have to have to get after it. In a um, the thing I liked about Trufant though, he could play man, he could play zone, he does have some versatility there. But yeah, this is. It's a, it's a high-pressure scheme for cornerbacks in general. I do think that man coverage um, plays to the strengths, though. Like, I, I think that in theory, yeah. he's, he's a better man coverage corner than he is his own corner. Did you see Darius Lay tweeting about their scheme, by the way, yesterday, I think? No. No. He, so, <laughs> somebody, was, somebody was tweeting something about how, um, like, the Lions don't disguise anything. Like, they, they don't – you and Darius Lay basically came out and said, yeah, that's exactly what it is, like – they, they do exactly the same thing. And there were plays in the game where, you know, uh, Devontae Adams was basically telling him he knows what they're running and because they don't, they don't disguise anything. He's like, I knew that if you, you never track in zone, like you never cross the field in zone. So if you cross the field, it's man. Like that used to be right. one of those, those tells that quarterbacks would get 20 years ago, right? It's put a guy in motion. If they follow him, it's man. If they don't, it's zone. And obviously at some point teams were like, well, that's a complete tell as to what we're running. So we need to, we need to like, change that up a little bit. Otherwise yeah. they get a tell every single play. So for like the last you know, 15 years, whatever, that hasn't been like a like for like tell, but apparently with the lions, it is again. Um, so Slay was basically just tweeting. Yeah, that's, that's how it works. Like they don't, they don't let you do anything else. This is what we're running. Interesting coming with Patricia coming from the Belichick tree where like on paper, the Patriots don't do anything exotic. They actually do play the most just straight up cover one. Uh, much like the Lions, but the stuff that happens before the snap to get into that is a lot more discussed than what you're describing with Detroit. Um, speaking of the Patriots, also on this list is Isaiah Wynn, third year offensive tackle. He missed all of his rookie season in 2018, was limited to a little bit over 500 snaps last year. Um, you know, he's just a he's a short tackle too. Like big part of him coming out was the NFL mostly wanted him as a guard. We said he could play tackle despite his size. So he still has to prove that. And, oh, by the way, you have to go play, you know, left tackle for the New England Patriots. And I think, to their credit, the Patriots thought that as well. Like, he was drafted as a tackle, not as a guard for them. Um, yeah. He was a guy that may have played inside early if they needed it, but they had him pegged, I think, as the Nate Solder replacement. And all of a sudden, they sort of need – again, it's like through no fault of their own, you haven't really played. And then, like Mike Hughes of the Vikings, they need him to come in, start, last all season, and actually be quite good. Um, and that just inherently puts a lot of pressure on a guy. So like some of these were sort of, Hey, you need to play well to prove that you're worth more money than they currently think you are. And some of these are like, you've suddenly had a lot of pressure thrown in your direction because you've just, you've ended up the focus of, of whatever it is like this particular starting spot. And that's where Wynn finds himself. Like he just hasn't played that much. And all of a sudden he's the starting left tackle for a team that's, you know, wants to be contending. The other piece of pressure that he has is not having Brady back there who has done a good job of protecting his line right. through the years. You know, you know, he's going to be at seven yards on his dropbacks. You probably don't have to block as long. Now you've got Cam Newton. He doesn't hold the ball that much longer, but it's definitely longer. Or you have Jared Stidham um, who 
doesn't have the best internal clock in the pocket. So no matter who the quarterback is, it's going to be a lot more challenging than the 500 or so, so snaps that he played uh, with Brady last season. Um, here's the other, another name, two more names to get through, but like another name I really like on the list is Austin Corbett. And this goes back to like the Brashad Perryman thing or the Desmond Trufant thing. Like, give me, give me guys where the data says they could break out, right? There's, they, they might not, but they could, right? And in, in Austin Corbett's in that boat, second round pick hasn't been great through two years. We've seen offensive linemen. They do tend if they're going to make a jump, it tends to be in year three or year four. He heads into year three without a lot of experience under his belt. Um, the Rams need him to be good because that offensive line is very dependent on a whole bunch of second and third year players getting better. But yeah, Austin Corbett has a lot to be up. Is he a starter? We'll find out right now this season. I think what bums me out about Austin Corbett is that he's never been given the shot to play the position that I think he belongs in. Um, he was an interesting prospect. senior bowl analysis. Yeah. He was an interesting prospect coming out because he played like tackle in college, right? Was always projected inside at the NFL level somewhere. And then I thought played at his best during the senior bowl week as a center. Like I thought that's where he looked really good. Um, and then has played guard at the NFL and just, just been bad. Like every single week he started, he got a grade in the fifties, which is actually insane. Like consistency like that doesn't happen at any level, let alone like, regardless of the range you're in, like to get basically a grade the same every week uh, on the offensive line is incredibly hard to do regardless of what the number is. Um, but I, I don't think he's going to get a shot to play center. So he's going to have to figure out whether he can play guard or not and sink or swim at that. But like, this is basically his last shot, right? I think, I think generally he was a player that I liked coming out, but I think the second round was pretty rich for him. And this is probably his last chance to survive as a starting player at the, at, at the NFL level. Yeah. It's just, I, I like following these, these guys and these stories just to see. Right. And again, I think from a team building standpoint, you take shots on these guys and you see if they can develop uh, in the third year. Um, and the last guy on the, on the list, Hayden Hurst. That's right. The Ravens first round pick that was selected ahead of Lamar Jackson in mm. the 2018 draft. I think with Hurst, not only is it this whole like year three, what do you have here? But you're going into the system with the Atlanta Falcons where um, they, they put Austin Hooper into a really good position to succeed, you know, to be a 60 or 70 catch guy and to put up some numbers. And I think Hurst is going to have those opportunities with Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones on the outside in Atlanta. He's another guy that's kind of been under pressure from day one because, you know, they drafted him. It was seen as a reach by a lot of people. It was seen as a crazy pick. So the, the fact that they then came back and drafted Mark Andrews in the, what, the third round didn't help, particularly because a lot of people thought that you should almost flip those picks. You know, Mark Andrews yeah. was the better player. And then Andrews is immediately outplaying him. And all of a sudden it's like, God, the, people thought he was a reach. They thought the guy drafted behind him was better. The guy drafted behind him is outplaying him. Like the poor guy is just like buried behind the eight ball with nowhere to go. Um, the Ravens eventually Plus cut almost bait. our age. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the Ravens eventually cut bait, but he finds himself in a situation where suddenly he's like, it's a better situation for him. He's the starter. He's replacing a guy who was given an incredible platform to succeed. And uh, this is a sort of sink or swim season for him. He somehow fell upwards after being under so much pressure. And I don't want to say crapped out with the Ravens, but you know, not being the guy that they thought he would be, they 
cut their losses and suddenly he falls on his feet and has a chance to be, you know, even better with the, the Falcons, but this is his chance. His actual production has been good. I mean, right. when, last year he had over 400 yards. He was one of three tight ends to have over 30 catches for the Ravens. I mean, the reason why they drafted two tight ends is they had a plan to be the, you know, a tight end heavy team with Mark Andrews. Don't forget Nick Boyle still there is more of like the run blocking tight end. Um, Hurst, you know, he's not a bad player. Uh, he gets after it in the run game. He's, he's good after the catch. Um, he does. He's going to be 27. Uh, he's got the same birthday as uh, my son, my oldest, Harry. Mm-hmm. August 24th, he turns 27. Harry turns five, in case you were wondering. Uh, but but anyway, the same Hurst, size. Yeah, they are. Well, they're both 6'4". Uh, Hurst is 245. Harry Harry's about 105. About, he's like 45. Yeah. <laughs> He's got to put some weight on that little guy. Um, so, yeah, August 24th, same birthday. Anyway, Hurst, I think he's in a good position to succeed. And if he, last year, 73 grade, I always say, like, if you produce at the same level, but you have a different situation, if he has a 73 grade in a full season with Atlanta, that's going to be 65, 70 catches, and that's right. going to be, you know, a good season. But, yeah, he definitely has to prove it this year, year three, four. So have you got any names that you think should be on the list that weren't? I, got um, I can't remember if I gave you – you can give me yours. I can't remember if I gave you suggestions that you didn't take. So I can't remember if it was Eric or George, but one of the forecast guys mentioned Khalil Mack. Um, you know, has dealt with some injuries, had a bit of a down year last season. Again, a guy that's kind of under pressure to prove that he's worth two players at least because of the trade. Right, right. Um, so Khalil Mack, I think, needs to have a bounce-back season. George suggested Jimmy G – uh, which is interesting because, you know, the, they come up short in the Super Bowl. Some of the criticism was thrown his way. He is that interesting quarterback of being a sort of weird hybrid of a game manager and yet a guy who's capable of bigger games and also capable of making some crazy mistakes. But he's got a kind of interesting year ahead of him. You, you could throw all, like you could throw Jared Goff in there, like all those quarterbacks who have had seasons where their right. supporting cast has elevated them and then seasons where they're unable to, I mean, that's the, the, the mid-tier quarterback and that's Dak. I mean, Dak has two top 10 finishes in PFF grades and two right around 20, right? Like, what are you Dak? Are you the 10th best quarterback in the league? Are you the eighth best? Are you the 15th best? I mean, I think he's, he's in that boat as well. Yeah. Plus um, he's potentially rolling into the season, still shooting for that big contract, you know, and they, he has to, and Andy Dalton sitting behind him. Yeah. He's got, he could easily be on it. And then Ben, Stockwell basically came up with anybody who had their fifth year option declined. So Hall of Famer Corey, <laughs> Corey Davis. Davis. Yeah. Hall of Famer Corey Davis has to show that he's a Hall of Famer at some point. Garrett Bowles, all those guys. Um, I think Ed Oliver is another name because you you wrote him up as a potential breakout. And yeah, there's some data that points to like, yeah, I mean, if he's gonna do it, like it should probably be now as he gets acclimated with the NFL and not having to play zero tech nose tackle. But as I was researching the bills the other day, did you know Jerry Hughes has led them in pressures every year since 2013? Like since he got there, he's been the pressure leader. Yeah. I mean, it's not that surprising, but right. he's never really had a great compliment. He's had yeah. some decent years of Kevin Williams, like not a great compliment. Like I feel like the bills, they've thrown a lot of resources at stitching together the defensive line, but they could use more elite play there. They got at Oliver top 10. And I think it's, Year two, like you want to see that already. Kyler Williams, not Kevin Williams. Did I say Kyler? What did I say? You said Kevin. Oh, Kevin. Oh, Kyle. Will- yeah, yeah. Uh, I was meatball. even picturing Kyle. Yeah, yeah meatball. Picturing. 
Uh, yeah, I didn't know that, but it certainly doesn't surprise me. I mean, Hughes has been, again, one of the most sort of underrated, I think, consistent pass rushers of his time. And yeah, as you say, the Bills haven't had that kind of complimentary threat, even though they've taken a few swings at it. It's a big year for the Bills. Yeah. A lot of prove-it guys over there. So anyway, that's it. Any, anybody else that you wanted to add to the mix? No, Good like list. I say, Ben had a few names. We've got Matthew Judon, I think makes some sense. Leonard Williams has got something to prove. Uh, <clears throat> Hunter Henry needs to sort of bounce back after he's finally got healthy after all those injuries. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, uh, <clears throat> anybody who had their fifth year option declined. You know what, to be honest though, we all have to prove it. It's a prove it year for all of us, Everybody, Sam, because the, every year. the NFL stands for uh, not for long in case, yes. you, uh, in case you didn't know. Hmm. So we all have to prove it. You got to prove it. I got to prove it. We got to bring it every single week. So let's just list the rest of the NFL. Let's just go player by player. Drew that's Brees. A, that's a Renner podcast. Patrick Mahomes. What have you done for me lately? Hasn't won a Super Bowl <laughs> since February. True. Kirk Cousins. Who else we got here? I mean, forget Eddie winning Bridgewater. a Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes hasn't even completed a pass since February. Seriously. Huge decline mm. for Mahomes. Unexpected, but huge decline. Lamar hasn't won an MVP since January. Right. Right? I think it was January. Anyway, now it's February. It's the day before the Super Bowl. Anyway, that's it for us today. Uh, next week, we'll have Monday. We'll be together, and then maybe we'll drop some Joe Montana, Steve Young. I'm going to have a baby, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll sort it all out hmm. going forward. Um, next week, a lot of stuff going up on the website, offensive line rankings, my team preview series that Sam is going to get involved in. You're going to start hmm. helping out with that. It's going to be great. Um, so, yeah, for us at PFF, uh, football season never really ends, but I'll tell you, next week it really does crank up it's fantasy football season it's the same month that training camp is scheduled like it all starts going so uh we'll have a lot more uh season preview type stuff coming up in the coming weeks thanks to everybody for listening see you guys again on monday